welcome to Quaker Faith and Podcast, where we will explore traditional Quaker beliefs and the variety of Quaker beliefs found today. Welcome back to Quaker Faith and Podcast with Mackenzie and Micah. Uh, the chapter that we are looking at today is uh, 6C, and it's called The Place of the Individual in the Body of Christ. And it's um, taken almost entirely from William Penn's True Spiritual Liberty. So we're looking at um, individualism and community, and we've talked about this some before. I think you, I think you should read the uh, the first couple lines from the chapter because it's like really salty. Oh, it is. I called it spicy. Um, the first sentence says, "Western individualism, which elevates individuals above the group, destroys community, eats away at our concern for others' welfare, and too often produces cadres of self-styled prophets who point the way to promised lands in their own imaginations." Yeah. That's so that sets a tone. Yeah. And I think and I think that's I think that's fair, but it does go it and does, then it then contrasts. It, it does contrast. It says, however, there are many religious bodies who expect complete obedience to the group and its leaders. Obedience enforced with expulsion, excommunication, mm-hmm. shunning, or other more draconian devices. Right. And I think I think this is actually really relevant. Um both um this this distinction, right, between like or this uh these two sides you can sort of fall off on of does the individual have no responsibility to the community or does the individual like have too much responsibility to the community and does the community have like too much um, power over the individual and when do you know? Yeah, like I would certainly feel that like being in an Amish community would be very repressive like where, I mean, mm-hmm. like, oh, well, you know, I guess like, I guess it's harder for give a woman's example but for like men's clothing they're like, Oh, your suspenders are two inches wide. They're only allowed to be an inch and a half. You're in trouble now. I think this is re- I think this is relevant. Uh, not just uh, I think we're going to primarily be talking about the individual, but I kind of want to flag that I think this is also a relevant question for groups, and that this is something that's played out in in recent years um, um, in Quaker in Quaker communities, where there have been several uh, schisms in recent years in Quaker yearly meetings. Where at where at the root of things, uh, the real question at the end of the day was, um, who's in charge, the yearly meeting or the local meeting, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was actually like who who whose authority trumps whose, right? And that was made explicit with Indiana yearly meeting, um, which from which has now come the new association of friends, and and as with every schism in the last decade, it seems. LGBT stuff was the straw that broke the camel's back. But it wasn't but the real issue. What, right. What it revealed was a fundamental disagreement about authority. And um, Indiana Yearly Meeting, I guess maybe their faith and practice was set up, or at least there was a significant preponderance who believed that the Yearly Meeting had authority and could tell the local meetings what to do. And so when a local meeting stepped out of line, the Yearly Meeting was like, ah, you're in trouble. Right. Um, Meanwhile, there were some local meetings who had been under the impression that the relationship was more like what we have in Baltimore yearly meeting, where each local meeting is essentially autonomous, and sometimes we are all able to agree on something and put a statement out from the yearly meeting. But if we can't, that's okay. We will all do our own thing. And I would argue that neither of those is a healthy situation. And that uh, the ideal situation in with individuals in the meeting and with meetings in a yearly meeting is that there's a genuine back and forth 
between the body as a whole and the individuals that make it up. So in the case of a yearly meeting, there's really a back and forth between the local meetings and the yearly meeting as a whole. In a meeting, there's a back and forth between the individuals and the group as a whole. And that um, the individuals submit themselves to the group and the group holds itself, allows itself to be held accountable by the prophetic voices that emerge from the individuals. So uh, sometimes, oftentimes, we as individuals need uh, to receive wisdom from the group and sometimes even admonishment from the group. Um, but there are also many times when the group needs to receive wisdom, admonishment, a prophetic word from the individual. So for either side to say, for, for the individual to say, I'm the authority in my own life and you can't tell me what to do, or for the group to say, we are the authority and we don't really want to hear out of you, you should see to obey. Neither of those are healthy situations. Mm-hmm. I know one of the, um, um, I'm just going to use the old-timey term, elders in my meeting um, was surprised when I used the phrase mutual submission in like a Facebook comment referring to the relationship between individuals and meetings. It, it, you know, she wasn't expecting that. And I think it's not um, a phrase that is commonly used among us liberal Quakers. Um, But. Right. And I mean, liberal Quakers and evangelical Quakers, um, as in many things, they sort of, they're sort of opposite today. And, Liberal Quakers uh, in in their yearly meeting structures, right, but also in the local meetings, uh, emphasize complete individual autonomy. Uh, whether it's a meeting giving the meeting complete autonomy to do its own thing, um, or whether it's for the individual giving the individual complete autonomy to do their own thing. Um, whereas in the evangelical yearly meetings, uh, individuals are expected to toe the line in a lot of ways, and meetings are expected to the line in a lot of ways. In fact, um, I don't know I don't know to what extent this is the case in, in the liberal year of the meetings, but it's pretty standard. And I think this is standard in a lot of denominations outside of Quakers, but it's pretty standard um, for evangelical uh, Quakers to have all their local meetings, uh, meeting houses be owned by the yearly meeting. Well, that's definitely not the case with us. Right. Yeah. Every, every local meeting owns its own meeting house and... Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually, that was um, our friend Eric up in Northwest yearly, well, not Northwest anymore, uh, yearly meeting, Sierra Cascades, um, was telling me that Northwest yearly meeting um, owned all of the meeting houses and all of, and like, officially, Northwest yearly meeting was a single multi-campus church, mm. um, like, is, is what the structure was, because they owned all the meeting houses, they owned, like, all of the property, etc., and um, there's only, like, and they're all encapsulated under a single um, nonprofit designation with the federal government, mm-hmm. um, which in the U.S. you don't actually have to register your church as a 501c3 nonprofit. However, anybody listening who um, doesn't know if your meeting has one, I mean, it probably doesn't because it costs money to like file the paperwork, but there are a lot of things your meeting could be getting for free if you have that designation letter. Just so we're clear. <laughs> on the on the other hand, I would point while we're talking about this incredibly tangential tangent, yes. um, I, would, I would I would point out that if, if you if you have started um, uh, like a, a worship group or, or a small church or a house church even, um, it is it is very very easy 
to get yourself incorporated as a church. You do not have to be a 501c3 to start getting the tax advantages and other Right, advantages. and that, that's, that's what yeah. I was meaning is, is that the incorporation is is separate, but but they are actually all under one 501c3 as opposed to like, for us, like my meeting doesn't have a 501c3 number, but it is incorporated as its own church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that is a separate incorporation from the yearly meeting. Right. And um, so like, and I, I know like our yearly meeting is 501c3, but we can't use their, their magic codes to get discounts. <laughs> so back to the individual versus community. Right, yes. <laughs> um, I, I, I think, I think that uh, it's, it's, it's problematic as, as the book alludes to, it's problematic to sort of set either the individual or the community. Uh, again, I, I think it goes back to what I, I've said in an earlier episode. Like we tend to want to default uh, to either yes or no, open or close. And uh, the reality is, like the most dynamic communities have 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 a real uh, interplay. Between the concern, between the concerns and understandings and uh, agendas of all of the individuals and the community as a whole, whereas when you have just the individuals doing their own thing or just the community shutting everyone down, it doesn't lead itself to to good discernment. Which, at the end of the day, is what we're looking for as Quakers. <laughs> is, at the end of the day, what we're looking for as Quakers is to uh, be hearing and obeying the voice of Jesus. So. Having giving to giving all the all the authority to individuals or giving all the authority to the community stifles us in that listening. Um, so something that the authors of this book wrote and which Micah was amused and said it sounds like there were some engineers involved in writing it was it says what happens when an individual's discernment conflicts with the with that of the meeting? What if the individual's discernment is correct? What if the meeting's is correct? What if both are partially correct and partially incorrect? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got to cover all the bases here. Somebody, yeah. somebody worked out their truth tables. And, and in my in my experience, I would say almost always the third option is correct. The, the the third thing is what if both the individual and the meeting are both partially correct and partially incorrect? And that's why that's why um, when it's done well, and when we're ble- when we are blessed by the Holy Spirit's guidance, um, the meeting like the meeting for business in the Quaker style can be truly powerful. Um, we, we can have the experience of coming into a meeting for business um, with different vying ideas in the heads of different individuals, a different group think um, that, that the, sort of the community as a whole has, and come into that space with those vying, vying perceptions and come out of it uh, having been given a perspective that is different than anything we came into the conversation with. And I don't simply mean, you know, we, we put, we put a, a pinch of one person's opinion and a dash of another person's opinion and came together with a synthesis. I mean a totally different idea that no one had considered. That happens sometimes. It happens because we were listening. Uh, and when we just give all the authority to, say, the church leadership um, and, and shut everyone else down, or if we give all the, all the authority to individuals and aren't able to come to a collective decision, um, that we can't listen. We can't have that experience of being given an answer that's beyond what we had to start with. So most of this chapter is um, some questions from, it's, there's three questions from William Penn's True Spiritual Liberty, which is apparently written catechism style or FAQ style, um, because it gives a question and an answer. Um, and I 
found the first one to be the most interesting of them. Um, because the question is, must I conform to things whether I can receive them or no? And sorry, 17th century English, I think receive would be like understand or... Whether I can um, accept them. Accept. Okay, there we go. Um, so he says, no, but now consider the reason thou canst not receive them. Is the fault in the things themselves? Are they inconsistent with truth, or will not the truth assent unto them? Or is the fault in thee? Is it thy weakness or carelessness? If thy weakness, it is to be borne with and informed. If thy carelessness, thou oughtest to be admonished. Uh, <laughs> For it is the root of rancherism to assert that nothing is a duty incumbent upon thee, but what thou art persuaded is thy duty. The seared conscience pleads liberty against all duty, the unenlightened conscience is unconcerned, and the dead conscience is uncondemned, unless this distinction be allowed. There may be ignorance from inability or incapacity, and ignorance from disobedience and prejudice. So, though thou art not to conform to a thing ignorantly, yet thou art seriously to consider why thou art ignorant, and what the cause of such ignorance may be. It can't be God, it must be thyself, who has not yet received a sense for or against the matter about which thou art in doubt." So what I sort of feel like Barclay is saying here, because that was no, a lot. Pen. William Penn. Oh, Penn. I'm sorry. We were just talking about Barclay before. Um, I, I think, this is the fifth thing we've recorded today. Sorry, guys. Um, I, I, I think I think uh, what Penn is talking about here is uh, that when we when we come when we come into an encounter with Scripture, and we come into an encounter with uh, church tradition, uh, the response of the individual, if we disagree with something. The response to the individual uh, is naturally going to be, well, that's not right. I know what's right, and that's not right. But what Penn is inviting us into is, is uh, to consider that you might be wrong. Uh, and Which is it, a advice that you see in, um, at least in the Britain yearly meeting, Faith and Practice, or probably I'm sure Consider others. that you might be mistaken. Um, but but uh, I, I think for me that was a transformative moment um, when um, I... There was a transformative moment in my relationship with the Bible uh, when originally when I was reading, when I first started reading the Bible, I went into it with an attitude of, I believe what I believe, and basically the Bible, I'm going to believe the Bible insofar, I didn't, I didn't explicitly think this, but this, this was what was subconsciously there. In my relationship with the Bible, I was like, I believe what I believe, and if the Bible confirms what I believe, I'm going to like that. But if it says something that I think is wrong, then it, the fault is with the Bible, and I'm not going to accept that. Um, and my relationship with the Bible, and, and therefore with the church, with, with the Christian tradition, was transformed when I I shifted my thinking to, if I agree with something in the Bible, I'm going to embrace that, obviously. But if I disagree, if I find something in the Bible that goes against what I seems to go against what I believe, then I am going to sit with that and and consider why it might be that the writer of the scripture is saying something I disagree with. And, and so, so um, putting the burden, putting the burden on myself, instead of putting the burden on the scripture, I'm saying, well, the scripture, I just needs to believe what I believe. Instead of putting the burden on myself and saying, why don't I like what they're saying? And might I be mistaken? And often I've found that I was. That uh, kind of reminds me of, um, Hannah Barnard, who was a Quaker minister in the late 1700s, and um, she's 
she got shipped back to the U.S. from Britain, labeled a heretic. Um, like you do. Yeah, like you do. Um, and she had said, you know, there, there was some something that's in the Bible that, you know, there, and, and you know, usually, like, I mean, so often, there's there are things in the Bible where somebody's got their interpretation of it, and they're sure it's the right one. And when you disagree with them, that means you disagree with the Bible, as opposed to disagreeing with their interpretation. Because mm-hmm. human tendencies, right? And she disagreed with some, you know, she, she said, well, that hasn't been revealed to me yet. And I think actually that hasn't been revealed to me yet is really, I mean, what William Penn's saying in there when he says, um, where did I lost the page now? Um, when, when he says, um, it, it, who has not yet received a sense for or against the matter. Uh-huh. I think that's talking about it hasn't been revealed to me yet. But um, she'd also said that she thought it was possible that um, the Bible as as written and known in the 1700s might not actually be completely accurate to when it was assembled, you know, for 1,400 years prior. Um, and we certainly do have more copies of old pieces of Greek writing nowadays. And we know that the Bible, the, the, the translations we received are incredibly accurate at this point. The ones that we have, the, the modern translations. Well, we, we've even found out, like, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, mm-hmm. we found out that the translations we already had, which were much, much younger translations, were substantially the same. Okay. Which was impressive to find that out. Because but, before but we, we do know that there are some, some inaccuracies over... Like like Junia be, sure. being written as Junius, sure, sure. and things like that. Um, and and occasionally there are um, there will be a line that's that exists in only one copy and not in all these other copies. And they're like, wait a second, was that an addition? Right. Um, which one is actually yeah canonical um, <laughs> or whatever? <laughs> I think I think yeah. in matter in matters of of sort of interpretation is one thing, but sort of rejection. Of, of portions of scripture, which like I think we've all got passages like that, right? We've all got passages where it's like I do not like this part. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those in, I think those are really things. Our, our our sort of visceral dislike of certain parts of the Bible, which I think we all have, is a place where we do best to submit ourselves to the church and mm-hmm. say I don't like this, but this is what the, this is like this is the Bible. This is like this is a core part. Of, like this is a this is a foundation of church teaching. Um, and I may not like this, but I accept that this is in our shared writings. I accept that this is a part of the tradition, even if I don't like it. And I'm gonna, and but by accepting it means I have to wrestle with it. I can't just I can't say I don't like this. I don't and I, and I refuse it. I have mm-hmm. to wrestle with it. So for me, like it's parts like um, uh, like the genocides in the Old Testament. Uh, some 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 of the passages where Paul seems really misogynistic, um, like. Yeah, places in like the the book the the letter of Jude that seems just really nasty to me in certain points. It's like the shortest letter in the New Testament. And it's mm-hmm. like it's like really it's really like mean and bitter, um, and like just it's like I may not like this, but that doesn't matter because I'm just Micah Bales. The Church wrote this, and the Church has accepted this for two thousand years. I need a deal. We were gonna stop there, but like in editing, I realized that. Um, we didn't really talk about interpretation, and so, you know, 
I mean, we've said before, like when we're talking about the women's preaching, that Quakers have basically always interpreted things in the Bible differently than um, the quote-unquote traditional interpretations. Um, I've actually been reading a really good book lately called Face to Face Early Quaker Encounters with the Bible, which is by T. Bell Palmer Jr., um, who lives in Washington State. And um, this is like his life's work, and he's talking about how Quakers, um, like the early friends, read the Bible with empathy, or like John Woolman said, with near sympathy. Um, I'm really enjoying it. It really explains how we ended up with different interpretations, and it might be interesting for you in um, your explorations with the Bible. Um, so this book was published by a good friend of mine and Micah's, Eric, over at Barclay Press. And um, this kind of segues into, I don't know if you like signed up for our email list on our website. If you did, you might notice that the address that the government makes us include on the emails um, says Oregon, even though we've both said that we're from near Washington, D.C. So what's going on there is like we didn't want to put our home addresses, right? At the same time, we know that um, Barclay Press is being hit pretty hard by the um, shakeups in the evangelical friends world. And so um, I asked Eric over at Barclay Press, is there anything I can do to thank you for um, letting us use your address? Like, you know, like what, or like maybe something like mutually beneficial, like um, could we have a coupon code to share with our listeners? And he went, yeah, coupon code sounds great. Here you go. And so for the month of April 2018, if you put Quaker Faith into the coupon code box on the Barclay Press online bookstore, you will get 10% off your order. And who doesn't like discounts on books, right? You can find us on the web at quakerpodcast.org, as Quaker Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Patreon, and on iTunes.